Welcome to Granite State Golfers with Micah. I'm an avid amateur golfer in New Hampshire. This podcast dives into the stories of the top amateur golfers in my home state. We are about to tee off. Please join me. This episode features Peter Harrity, who has an accomplished golfing record in New Hampshire and owns two courses, Candia Woods and my home course, The Oaks. We discuss his early years in golf, his stadium titles, and what it is like to own and operate golf courses, including through the past few years, which has seen an explosion in golf popularity. I really enjoyed the conversation with Peter in learning about the different soils and grasses that make The Oaks unique. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and I'm grateful for you sharing this podcast with your friends. Here we go. Peter, welcome to Granite State Golfers, and thanks for coming on the show today. Hi, thanks uh, to you. Looking forward to it, Micah. Um, Let's start back in the beginning. Uh, Tell me where you grew up. Uh, When did you start playing golf, and who got you into golf? My parents got me into golf at a very young age, six or seven years old. Grew up in Rochester, New Hampshire, and learned to play and played for many years at Rochester Country Club. And did you get the golf bug right away? And was it a sport that you really took to and enjoyed early on? I was very fortunate. I had a very close friend who we had at the club, a pro that was uh, most interested in the junior program and worked with us. And he was fun to work with. And I had a close friend my age who got interested at the same time. So we kind of fed off each other. And for our early years, I'd say uh, as young as 10 up to about 15, uh, played a lot of golf together, competed uh, at uh, the local level. And uh, yeah, I got the bug about that. Yeah. And you mentioned competing. Did you start playing in some junior tournaments around then? I did. I played in the state juniors, I think, uh, for the first time when I was about 11 years old. And I was just uh, enamored by the feeling I got uh, and the excitement and enthusiasm and the camaraderie among all the players. And from that point on, I, uh, I don't think I missed the state junior uh, championship during my eligible years. And then played in you know, a lot of other junior tournaments, JC International, the um, New England juniors, just some, everything I could play in. I, when you were in high school, did, did your high school have a team, a golf team? Only my senior year, we had a team, and it was uh, reasonably competitive. We played, uh, did fairly well in the state uh, finals, the schoolboy championships, and we did fairly well in our matches as well. We had uh, we had a lot of fun with that. What did golf look like for you once you graduated high school? Well, I went to college at uh, Saint Anselm College in Manchester, and they had an active golf team, and I uh, played three years. Uh, when I was in college, freshmen weren't allowed to play varsity athletics. So I played three years of college golf at St. A's and had some marginal success, uh, but it was fun. and got some great friends throughout that period of time. What would the home course have been back then for the St. A's team? That's interesting because it was charming for your golf links, which uh, we now own, yeah, uh, which is somewhat ironic. And another thing, I uh, actually won the state junior championship at that same course. Oh wow! In 1965. So I've got a lot of history going back. Oh, that's a that's a that's a full circle full circle yes, moment. Sure is. 
How, uh, and so back to that junior championship that you won in 65, how old were you when you won that tournament? It was my final year of junior golf. And uh, I had had marginal success until then. And, uh, had some great matches, played some players that subsequently won the state amateur. Um, and they were competitors throughout junior golf and, and continue to be amateur golf competitors as well. When you were then in college, uh, when did you start competing in the state am events? Oh, I started at, at age 15. You oh, wow. That. And, uh, in fact, I was just uh, talking with John Ellis, our, our head professional here today, and he played yesterday up at the Mount Washington Hotel in the uh, one of the New Hampshire PGA events. And he asked me if I'd ever played there, and I said it was my first state amateur. I was 15 years old at the time, so uh, it's a long time ago. And so you've had a so you've been playing in the state M quite a bit. Uh, I if I did my research right, I believe you won the state M twice in 1988 at Kachiko, and then again in 2002 at Owl's Nest. Yes, I won twice, lost the finals twice. Uh, it was my favorite tournament to play. And it was, uh, it's an excruciating event, as you can well know. Yeah. Uh, and it's an incredible high if you can win, disappointment when you do lose. What do you, what do you remember about your first win at Kachiko? Uh, well, <laughs> what I remember is I was, uh, I think I was uh, four up with five holes, four holes to play. Five holes to play. And I had a uh, about a three foot putt to win the um, 14th hole and win the match, which was you know second 18, and I missed it. And an incredible event occurred. Uh, Dr. Robert Elliott was tending the pin, who was the secretary treasurer of the. NHA and the referee for the match, and he he held the pin, and he thought the putt had been conceded to me, and he was standing right over the hole, and I hit about a six-inch putt that didn't go in, and it hadn't been conceded, so we had to play um, three more holes, so I'll never forget that. Wow. I can see why. Yeah, no, that, that's what stands out to me, of course, uh, trying to win it for so many years and finally doing it was exciting. Yeah, I bet. Um, in talking in one of my other episodes to Bob Mealcars, one of the things Bob and I were talking about is the length of time he had between some of his wins. And you, you 14, after your win in 88, 14 years later, uh, you win at Owl's Nest. Um, tell me about what it was like to get back to, to into the final match there and what, what you remember about that final round. Well, it was a, it was a, a week that I, uh, everything just came together for me. I had been putting poorly. And uh, the week prior to the tournament, I got a different putter. And for some reason, it just clicked. And I literally made everything I looked at. And at the time, uh, the golf course really fit my eye. Uh, there weren't a lot of drivers there. And I had a three-wood that just came off my club hot, and it cut about 10 yards every time I hit it, no matter what I did. 
And I looked at the left side of the fairway for the entire week and hit it as hard as I could and hit it about 203 yards in the middle of the fairway. And the kids were hitting two and three irons, uh, same distance I could, but I could keep up to them because the driver was out of their hands as well. Yeah. And I putted and chipped the ball just miraculously well. Never played a match play round in which I wasn't under par, which was remarkable wow. for me. And, yeah. Uh, it was just a you know, fantasy week. Wow. That's great. When those rare things, when everything's just clicking on, on firing on all cylinders. Absolutely. And, and I think I, I might be the oldest player ever to win. Um, and I get teased about it a lot. And How, when I look back, I think it was nearly or about 20 years ago. I think, man, am I old now? How old were you uh, when you won it in 02? I was uh, 50, 55. Wow. That is impressive, especially given the the youth of the of the game that I know was beginning to come on strong then. Yes, it was. Yeah. Beyond, I know these aren't NHGA events, but um, I believe you've also won the Seacoast Am four times. Is that right? I did. I won four different times, and that was just a great event for me to play in. I enjoyed it uh, for years, and uh, I had success in it. There were a lot of good players, and uh, it was a lot of fun. And winning that was uh, was exciting every single time. Yeah, that's um for the listeners who may not be familiar with the Seacoast Am. Uh, this is a, a pretty old tournament in the Seacoast of New Hampshire that takes place in late June, and it's a three day event, and it rotates uh, three different courses each year. Um, and so you've got to have a your your game needs to travel. Uh, to diff- to oftentimes very different courses, um, which makes it a particular challenge. And you've got some incredibly talented golfers, uh, obviously playing out of the out of the Seacoast. Any one of those uh, four wins, Peter, in the Seacoast Am that you might want to say a word about? I think the last one. It was uh, I think the year prior or two years prior to my last state amateur win, and I hadn't won anything for several years, more than a decade. And uh, I kind of backed in and won in a, in a playoff. And it just sort of uh, revitalized me. And I said, well, maybe I can be a factor going forward for a few more years. And, uh, and I was. So, it, yeah, that, that's the one that uh, I really didn't think I was going to win again. And uh, I did. That's great. In addition to your accomplished um playing career and the wins that you've had. Uh, I'd also like to talk a little bit about your journey into owning and running uh, two golf courses in the state, uh, Candia Woods and the Oaks, where I'm a a proud member. Um, Tell me when this started and what what made you want to get into that part of the golf industry? Well, my the you know, majority of my career was as a sales rep, an independent contractor sales rep in the golf industry. And the products that I sold, most notably ping golf equipment, uh, were sold exclusively at Golf Course Pro Shop. So I called on golf pros uh, for 28 years. And throughout that time, I had interest in someday maybe owning a golf course or being part owner of a golf course. And um, the opportunity came up in late 80s, and I think it was about 1990, and a group uh, of us, uh, one of whom was Jim Sharon, the, the longtime pro at uh, 
candy uh, for the Abenaki Country Club, uh, where I was a member, still am, put together a group and purchased the uh, what was then called Charming Bear, ultimately changed the name to Candy Woods. And through the years, the partnership uh, changed. We were four of us originally and ultimately ended up with two. And my partner passed away about five years ago. He and I uh, decided to go on embark on the building of the Oaks. We did that in uh, in the early 2000s, and we forged ahead since then. It's been an interesting journey, I can tell you that. What year did the Oaks open up, and how long did it take to build the Oaks? We started construction in the summer of 2003. We opened nine holes in the fall of 2005 and the full 18 in 2006. Um, that's the time frame. The construction was slowed for a variety of reasons, um, but we got it done and got open. And I think we were maybe the last golf course built in the United States that was under conventional financing that did not go bankrupt because wow. it's about the same time that uh, the boom in golf not only slowed, but we saw a decline of almost uh, 35% of golfers in the U.S. between um, mid-2000, you know, 2004, 5, 6, and 2017. Wow. And that the course at the Oaks was built on, was it, was it heavily wooded? Well, yes, originally, but there had been a planned golf course on the facility that the city of Summersworth had put together, designed by Brad Booth, who was the designer here. And the original fairway lines had been cut, um, I think six years prior to, to our uh, involvement. So the holes were basically cut out the growth was coming up and it was hard really to see what they might look like. But yeah, fairly heavily wooded. The, the land, as you know, is uh, is easily drained. It has a lot of sand and gravel on it. And yep. We, uh, we thought about calling it the Heath, the Heath course, which the land is similar to the Heathlands in uh, near London, which uh, is where Wentworth is and some of the famous courses there, which made it somewhat ideal to build a golf course on. So it was very interesting, completely different from our Indian wood sports, which is on heavy soils, like most of the wood courses are. Yeah. Yeah, you can tell. Uh, well, I appreciate that description. And I can I wouldn't have been able to have described it like that, but certainly playing a number of courses in the state, the oaks, the soils of the oaks, you can tell is just a little bit different. Well, it's firmer. All our greens yep. are USGA spec, so they're hard, they're fast, they're firm. <laughs> Yes, they are. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, it's a challenge for people that are accustomed to putting on greens that maybe roll in the 7-8 range uh, on a simp meter and come here and, and they're 11, 11 and a half sometimes when it gets breezy and dry. Um, but that's because of the, the bed grass that our superintendent, Steve Malloy, is able to maintain and the uh, 12 inches of pure sand that's the base. When you set out to build the oaks, what did was that something you wanted to do or with the the nature of those greens? You wanted them firm and fast. I wanted bent grass, and yep. so did the architect uh, Brad Booth. We felt that bent grass was the way to go. So uh, when you when you put bent grass in, you can't 
sustain it over a period of time unless you've got the right base. So most courses that were built prior to 1995 or so in New England have what are called push-up greens, even the private clubs. And push-up greens mean they took the soils that were existing on the property and they shaped the greens of that soil. If they happen to be sandy soils, they drain well. If they happen to be less porous and more dense, with the more fines in it, they don't tend to drain as well. Regardless, if you're pushing up greens, it's hard to get the root zone to be deeper than a few inches. So with bent grass and sand, you can get those roots down about 12 inches and you can maintain and you can sustain the, the bent grass. We have two courses and they're exact opposite in their, uh, in their grass and cultivar makeups where you have whole greens with bent mixed in at Candy Woods, which probably 95% of the courses in New England have. And at the Oaks, we have uh, absolute pure bent grass greens. Wow. Well, that's good. I didn't know all that, so I appreciate the information and learning about that. You mentioned the the drop-off in interest in golf um, leading, you know, in the early part of the 2000s and leading up to 2017. Uh, we then go through the pandemic, um, and through the pandemic, there's been just an absolute surge in golf, uh, ranging from what the equipment manufacturers are reporting on their sales to how you know the how full the tee sheets are and how many golfers want to get out and play. Can you talk a little bit about what it's been like owning and running two courses in these last couple of years with such a demand for golf? Sure. Uh, you know, and what you say is uh, you know very accurate in terms of the popularity of the game. We saw an upswing in, in our play that predated the COVID uh, interest. And it continued, uh, of course, uh, in 2020 when we immediately after the shutdown, when the shutdown occurred, we were closed. We had an early start that year. We closed for 42 days. And on the day of reopening, I think it was May 11th of 2020, we had a full tee sheet. And my feeling was, well, it won't be full the day after that opening day because everybody's just anxious to get out. But it hasn't slowed down. We thought we were going to return maybe a little bit to those 2019 levels uh, in 2021 and we saw a bigger increase and that's been sustained in 2022. I've been working closely with a, uh, some industry analysts. Uh, the name of the company is, is Pellucid Golf and it's really two individuals. One, uh, Jim Coppenheimer, who's in Chicago and the other Stuart Lindsay in Milwaukee. Been working with them for the last 20 years, and they've been prognosticators of the downturn in the industry and the popularity of the game, uh, usually in, in converse of what the National Golf Foundation has been reporting, but they've been incredibly accurate. And for years, they were uh, termed uh, or called Dr. Bloom and Mr. Doom by golf industry people, but they were right. And there were some things that we've been trying to do prior to the what what's called the COVID dead in golf, uh, to change that trend. And we've had some successes with it. And now they both feel that this COVID dead is more than just a COVID dividend. It's probably going to be lasting a bit longer than we thought, which we're very excited about. I think golf is a fun game and golf is, is beginning to see the, uh, 
the opportunities to make it more fun. You know how difficult it is. You're an avid golfer. Yeah. Uh, but it can be a lot of fun. And, you know, we've done a lot of things here. Uh, you're probably familiar with our music on the range and some of our new teaching programs. And uh, we're seeing a lot of new golfers come, come to us. And, you know, I think we have six PGA professionals on our team and, and they're busy teaching. That's great. Um, with the surge in demand and interest in playing golf, can you tell what demographic is it? Is it younger people coming out, or where is the growth mostly coming from? Well, you really uh, the more exciting thing is we're seeing a younger golfer really embracing the game, and it's somewhat of a different type of golfer. They're not necessarily uh, interested in competing at a high level. They're interested in having an enjoyable day and playing well. Uh, the term we use is we call them the barstool golfers. Yep. And, uh, you know, they, they, they come in and they're you know, ranged in age from 25 to 38 or 9. And uh, they want to enjoy their day. Uh, and they want to play well. And it's, it's a, different, uh, a different trend than we've seen in the past. Uh, in addition to that, I think a lot of people came back to golf that had left it for a while, and I think they're staying with us. Wrapping up this section just about owning the courses, what's what's something about owning golf courses and what it takes to run them that even someone like myself, an avid golfer who spends a lot of time at a golf course, maybe we wouldn't know about or maybe don't appreciate what goes on behind the scenes? There's a lot of moving parts behind the scenes. And uh, whether it be pace of play, um, whether it be conditions, whether it be weather impact, there's a lot of moving parts. And a lot of people that have to work as a team to provide an experience that's enjoyable for everyone. Um, we've made a commitment at our courses, and unfortunately, because of lack of delivery. We haven't been able to introduce it as fast or as soon as we wanted, but we are uh, we are moving to a GPS on our carts uh, and we're doing it not, not necessarily to improve the player experience for the screen and yardages and all that sort of thing. We're doing it strictly to be able to monitor the pace of play and make it a reasonable pace of play uh, for everyone that comes out. Uh, it's a big investment for us. We thought we'd be up and running by mid-July, but our suppliers had some issues um, getting deliveries. But we'll be full-blown by, certainly by the fall. Uh, our goal and objective is to try to provide the best possible experience we can every time the offer comes out, which includes uh, the pace of play. Now, I know in your case, Martha, you're first off, and uh, <laughs> your pace is great. But when you get an early group going out and, they, and they're dragging their heels and they're running at four and a half hours, it just destroys the game for everyone throughout that day. So with you know more demand, we've stretched our tee times out. We've even gone to something called stretch tee times, which lengthens them as we move through the day and play tends to get slower. Yeah. But we're yeah. going to monitor play very closely with our GPS. And uh, if, when people come to us, we want them to expect to be able to play in a reasonable amount of time. Every well, that's time great. 
Well, that's great. Well, um, my friends and I that do play early, we know it's a, a special responsibility to to set an appropriate pace of play so we don't, you know, slow oh, you do. down. You do. You do. You're great. <laughs> um, let's go back to your your own game. How much are you playing, you know, th- this summer? Do you, you still get out and play quite a bit? I try to play twice a week. It has been frequently once a week, and I'm not very good anymore. <laughs> so I just love to be out there and play. Yeah, uh, it's it's great to be with friends and enjoy the day, enjoy the weather, and occasionally you hit a good shot, and that makes it all worthwhile. That's right. keeps you keeps you coming back. This this next section I call gimmies. So these are short, straightforward questions. This first one will be interesting. I. And maybe it's like, um, you know, having when someone asks you who's your favorite kid, but the in this gimme section, the first question I've been asking the guests is if you have a favorite course in New Hampshire. I have two. <laughs> That's what I thought. <laughs> Kachiko Country Club and Owl's Nest, the two courses I want to stay amateur. No, I love it. I love uh, that. That's a great so answer. I, I, and I'll tell that to, to my dying day. That's great. Um, and they are good courses, and they're well conditioned, and yeah, they were great for me. Was uh, back to Kachiko, um, which I'm familiar with. When you, you know, the the I'm not fully steeped in Kachiko's history, but obviously the back nine is is quite a bit different than the front nine. When you won it in '88, was the back nine as it exists today? Was it like that back in '88? Uh, for the most part, the 12th hole. Uh, current 12th hole was was non-existent and okay. the 16th hole was a par three which they still have as a practice hole yeah uh, other than that uh, the, the layout was the same it's a new green on, on number uh, 13 uh, yeah but it was virtually the same yes yep all right back to the gimmies what's your current favorite club in your bag my uh, gap wedge gap wedge good this one's multiple choice. If you have the choice between hitting a really good drive with your driver or flushing a mid iron or making a long putt, which one of those are you taking? I love to tell you it's flushing a mid iron, but I don't have any mid irons anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, and I can't hit a long drive. So I guess we'd be making a long putt. Putting was a strong suit in my game when I played well. Okay. And I struggled with the, you know, the infamous yips. And I, you know, I've got an arm lock putter now and I can put a little bit. And occasionally I knock a long one in and that's the best. Nice. Any current favorite PGA or LPGA players that you like a lot? Um, I like all of those players that are staying on the PGA tour. Yeah, I hear you there. Um, I'm concerned about the challenges that, um, golf at the highest level it's got right now yep it's it's disconcerting to me i think pga tour is reacting very well and uh i i i just have a high regard for those guys that stayed in there compete i think it's good for golf that they're there yeah i agree with you and it was um well the tour championship this past weekend was was quite good watching rory and scotty battle it out um and i was really Delighted to see Rory win in part for the leadership role that he's taken this year to defend and promote the PGA Tour. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Last question in the gimme round here. 
Is there a course uh, anywhere in the country or the world, frankly, that's on your bucket list that you haven't yet played that you'd really like to get to play? In Andrews. Uh, oh, nice in, one. In yeah. Scotland. I've not been to Scotland. I've played several of the courses in Ireland. My favorite course in Ireland was Valley uh, Bunyan. And I felt I got uh, a feeling uh, that was unique uh, playing the course. It was almost mystical. And I'd never had that feeling uh, prior. And the only time I've had it since is on the occasions that I've played at uh, Pebble Beach, which has been several times. And mm. You get to the, uh, the sixth hole and the seventh tee, it's mystical. Uh, but I haven't been to St. Andrews. Well, that's a good one. I, I've not yet been to Ireland or Scotland, but uh, Bally Bunyan, for anyone I know who's been over there, says the same wonderful things about that course that you just said. Oh, to wrap things up here, uh, golf has been a huge part of your life, uh, starting, as you told us, as a young kid uh, through a, a really successful uh, golf career, winning some big tournaments to owning a couple golf courses. Uh, and so my last question is, why do you love the game of golf so much? That's a hard one. I, I ask myself that question with some frequency. <laughs> uh, golf golf is, is, to me, it's, it's what you want from it and, and what you can do with it. It's a completely individual sport. Uh, not that I don't admire team sports and played them in the past and enjoyed them, but uh, there's no excuses for golf. It's all on you. And not only in terms of your successes as a player, but your enjoyment from the game. People can enjoy golf regardless of who they are and what their uh, abilities are uh, if they let themselves do so. And I think it's just so unique uh, in that regard. Uh, it allows so many opportunities. Uh, and in addition to that, it's outside on beautiful grounds. How can you not enjoy that? So I guess that's my answer to that. No, I love it. That's a, that's a good answer. Well, Peter, uh, thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed talking to you and hearing about your journey through golf. Uh, and it was great talking to you, and I appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks, Mike. I'll look forward to seeing you out at the Oaks. Thank you for listening. Granite State Golfers is produced by Dew Sweeper Productions. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast. Until next time, tee it up, have fun, and go low.